Apple this week pulled a Facebook app from the App Store. It's called Facebook Research. Its purpose was to let Facebook watch everything that a user did on the phone. Now, Apple says the snooping app was too invasive, even if users had consented to letting Facebook watch their every move. Uh, which raises the question, how much social media is too much? Are we giving these platforms too much data? Are we posting stuff too quickly without thinking about it? Is it time to step back? Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas, Powerful People. I am John Fort from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. With me this week, Farhad Manju, New York Times columnist who recently wrote a column about his boneheaded tweets in response to the controversy around Covington Catholic students and how those inspired him to change his Twitter behavior. Also with me here in New York, Jeff Jarvis, professor at the City University of New York, longtime journalism commentator. Chris Moody also joins me. He's a former data strategy VP at Twitter, currently a partner at investment firm Foundry Group. And later on, Jaron Lanier, noted computer scientist and researcher at Microsoft, is going to join us. But to start off, Farhad, um, I, I know the, the hashtag never tweet was uh, mm -hmm. made an appearance in your column, but y you still tweet. As a matter of fact, you, you held a live conversation on Twitter about <laughs> not tweeting. So, okay, what's, what's really going on? What's your real takeaway? And I know you wrote about this in the column from that Covington dust-up. Yeah, I mean, never tweet is sort of an impossible standard for working journalists. You have to be on Twitter to promote your work. You have to be on Twitter to uh, look at what people are talking about. Um, I think that uh, tweet less, be on Twitter less is a kind of a good maxim to live by. I used to be a Twitter addict. I used to be on it all the time, and I thought that it had, um, you know, it was useful to a lot of my life, and it was fun. Um, but I also thought that it was ruining how I thought about the world. Um, being on Twitter all the time gave me this perspective that the people on Twitter were sort of the real audience and was the real world and that I should write for them. Um, and it was also sort of drawing me into these silly fights, uh, fights that people have on Twitter about tweets, uh, easy dunking, reflexive, sort of a, uh, hot taking. Um, and it was kind of ruining my thinking. And I think that some of those patterns I see in the media generally, it so, kind of happens over and over again. So what um, did and you Covington tweet, was an example. What did you tweet about Covington and how did that lead you to, to say, okay, I gotta oh. do something? No, I didn't tweet anything about Covington. Okay. Um, I, 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 this was sort of during my, um, you know, my absence, and I saw people tweeting about Covington, ah. and I felt that if, if, if I um, had fallen, you know, if I was sort of not pulling back from Twitter, if I was sort of in my, my old self, I would have, and I would have uh, made a fool of myself. <laughs> not, you so know, you saw I would have probably done, done that just because, yeah, right, right. Um, I would have seen, I saw the video and I sort of reacted uh, uh, too reflexively. And the only reason I didn't tweet was because I don't tweet as much anymore. <laughs> Jeff Jarvis, you had your own response to this column from Farhad. And I wonder, are you guys actually sort of agreeing in a way? Maybe Farhad was just worse off than you imagined in his addiction to Twitter, and he was using it in a way that you would imagine you know, journalists shouldn't use it. He doesn't seem to be saying he's abandoning Twitter altogether and not listening to people. He's just saying, maybe the next time my wife gives birth, I'm not going to tweet from the delivery room. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, we, we agree and disagree. I, I think there's, there's something deeper I'm hearing from Farhad and other journalists. Now, Farhad didn't say to kill Twitter. He didn't say to go off entirely. He did say to lurk more. But I have a problem even there. Really? Okay. The journalists 
uh, sit back and think we're separate from the world and we want to lurk and find people's stories and frankly exploit those stories and then use them. I think that there's a couple problems I have with this. Number one is don't see Twitter as the world. Farhan says that uh, Twitter's not the real world. I hate to say it to him, but neither is the New York Times. They're all unique audiences. And well, on neither Twitter... Is, neither is New York, actually. Uh, it's the center of the damn universe <laughs> is where we are right now. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that there's an opportunity if you see Twitter not to look at the forest, but look at the trees. You see people as individuals. You can find new people. If you look, for example, at the hashtag living while black, was an experience that African-Americans have known for how long, mm -hmm. but white Americans didn't know about because newspapers like the New York Times, that are, whose newsrooms are filled primarily with white people, didn't have it happen to them. So when people were being uh, abused by the police when they were shopping or having lunch or going into their own homes, the hashtag on Twitter enabled people to share that. It was a platform that no one had had in that community, and now they had a platform. So I don't think journalists should say, oh, let's... Let's go away. Now, Farhad's point was about um, speaking less and listening more. I'm all for listening. Journalists have to listen better. But we also have an obligation to bring journalism to the people where they are. Hmm. And, to, and to, if we complain about that conversation on Twitter, let's improve it. So, Farhad, what about that? I mean, uh, Jeff's point seems to be there are important conversations, trends happening in places like Twitter that um, you're not necessarily going to pick up anywhere else. So maybe spending less time on Twitter isn't the answer. Maybe it's just spending just as much time, but differently. Um, I mean, do do what works for you. I <laughs> I think that one of the one of, one of the problems is that Twitter has become. I mean, it 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 does serve that function that Jeff mentioned. There are marginalized groups in the world who have used Twitter to get their voices out, to get recognized by journalists, and that's important. There are also people who aren't marginalized, like Donald Trump, who use Twitter to get their voice out and get recognized. And there are also people who are sort of um, creating information campaigns, activist campaigns, um, using you know sophisticated uh, technology or otherwise to kind of get their story out. It's become uh, you know a much hotter, sort of more active, bigger, um, and in some ways kind of underhanded fight. If it was kind of obvious with Twitter's me mechanics, like who has a legitimately marginalized viewpoint that we should recognize <laughs> and who doesn't, I think that would be you know, better. Um, also, there's lots of other places online where these conversations are happening that might just have better mechanics. Like, you can, you can find this on Reddit, too. You can have, and, and Reddit is like, there, there are problems better, there, saying. but there are other places <laughs> online that we should look at. Okay, um, I, I want to bring in Chris Moody, a former VP at Twitter, uh, focused a lot on data. And, and Chris, broaden this out a bit, because we're not just talking about the never tweet hashtag or about this specific Covington fallout. There's also the issue, I think, of, of what we saw happening with Facebook research, even the story today, and, and the idea that some people were given Facebook unfettered access to everything they're doing on the phone. Have people gone into some of these platforms too far? Have the platforms begun to extract too much data? Do we as, as individuals need to set up more walls and maybe be better educated about how the data's flowing? Yeah, look, I think there's, there's definitely a lot of tension. There's been a lot of tension for a long time between uh, the tension between journalists and between uh, Twitter is, is a very real thing. Just a, a quick anecdotal story, story as a snowblower or something stops up behind me. Uh, the, uh, uh, when I was at Twitter, um, I 
was probably three or four years ago. I was asked to keynote a conference in, in Munich, and uh, it was a big conference. There was a lot of media there, and uh, I was doing a lot of international uh, business media type things. But the last interview was a guy from Germany, and he was just raking me over the coals around privacy and around isn't Twitter's audience too small. And it was a really tough interview, and we got done, and you know, cameras off, and I said, hey, you know, sorry, sorry, you know, you're not having a great experience with Twitter. And he's like, are you kidding? I I love it. I'm on it all day. And I think there's always been this this tension, but that tension doesn't just exist between journalists and Twitter. It it exists between businesses and Twitter as well. And I think the big tension is that we've gone from platforms that were monologues. I mean, for a, for a long time, journalism really was more of a monologue type platform. And the, the measures that you were getting back were very indirect around viewers or subscribers. Mm-hmm. And now it's a dialogue. Companies have gone through the exact same uh, thing where they used to be able to have a monologue. They'd go out and market uh, to the world and then they would get these indirect measures around sales lift. You know, now we live in a world where companies have to have a dialogue. And I think the same thing is true uh, for journalists. In terms of how the platform's gone too far with data, clearly, you know, we've seen that with Facebook. And I think, you know, when I, when I was on your show, a few months ago, I, I will say at that point, I was giving them kind of the benefit of the doubt of like, hey, I think there was things happening, just moving parts that, you know, maybe not everyone in, in the company realized were happening. You know, I think it's pretty clear now that, um, you know, that it was a, it was a systemic problem mm. much bigger than just, you know, some small areas that were happening within Facebook. Jeff? I, I, I sympathize with the experience in Germany because I've been there often, and, and there's a, it's a problem not just in German media. I think I see it spreading into American media where there's a moral panic that is creeping in. The coverage we see in the New York Times and elsewhere of all the platforms is quite negative now. Full disclosure is I raise money from Facebook for my school, but I'm independent of Facebook. <laughs> okay. But I think Appreciate that the other the thing that's happening here yeah. is that you're right. It's about the conversation. Uh, James Carey, a legendary Columbia professor, talks about the conversation as being the primacy of journalism and of democracy. And we're not used to hearing the voices of people out there. Times Square is an amalgam for democracy. And we see people there who we don't normally see, we don't necessarily want to hear, but now they can speak. And I welcome that, and I think that's really beneficial. And the platform I, doesn't I make the them car- bad. I, we have to give people credit for the agency and the intelligence they have. They're using this how they choose to use this. Um, I think the conversation is important, but I think one of the things we've realized in the last year, two years, is that a lot of the conversation, more than we thought, um, a lot of the conversation online is fake. Um, there's fake videos. There's sort of fake people. Um, on Twitter, there's fake followers. On Facebook, um, you know, there were fake ad metrics. Um, there were there are propagandists. There are marketers. There are activists, and it is difficult in the moment to figure out what's real and what's not. For how, how much of that is in your feed every day? I mean, I go through my feed and I don't see Nazis and bots. I see people like you who I, I respect and like. Jeff, I, I see them reacting some, to some stuff I post, yeah. making assumptions perhaps about yeah. why I posted what I posted or the, the source that I've posted from, even if uh, the, the journalism that that source has done is pretty good. I, I wonder, is Twitter just another community, another neighborhood like New York, where, where you can't say, well, I'm going to focus on thinking that this is the entire world. This is one group of perhaps people, interests represented. I've got to both engage with it and protect myself from thinking that it's got more influence or should have 
more influence than it should. That is a mass media way to look at the world. And, and you've got really? to break out of that habit the, of thinking that only mindset, the mass matters. Only big size matters. And that's just about being representative. Size. I'm saying even, even it's the same as looking at New York and thinking, hey, that's all I need to pay attention to. New York's not all you need to pay attention to. Twitter's not all you need to pay sure. attention to. But even you within to get Twitter. You the Midwest every once in a while, et cetera. Let me, let me go to the next point about your point. Okay. Twitter's not a community. When, when, when media say Twitter is going crazy today, that's <laughs> ludicrous, right? Twitter is right. a thousand, a million communities. It is people in conversation with each other, and that's the way we need to see it. Tons of which I never see. And, and I think we can begin to see examples of how to use this well, about how to have meaningful conversations. I'll give you three words. Yeah. Alexandria really, Ocasio-Cortez. It's really interesting. You want to see how she does Twitter, how she understands how to use this, how she has conversation, how she gets her point across, how she answers questions and starts movements. It's a very valuable tool. Chris, uh, let me get your take on this. Jump in. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's super interesting. When you think about the, the history of Twitter, and I still believe that breaking news is the most important use case on Twitter, and we've seen time and time again things break on, on, on Twitter. That was the early use case that everybody you know, on, on the media side got really comfortable with is, and I think you know, we, we worked to actually give tools to, um, to journalists so that they could find breaking news e easier. I think at one time we had like 20,000 journalists on this one tool called Data Miner for News, which was all about just finding stuff fast and you know, it was beating the wire service by over an hour with, with breaking news. That was, that was super comfortable and everybody got in this mode of like, hey, stuff, you know, you can find stuff on Twitter quickly and it gets amplified and you can know. Now yeah. we've moved into this world where, you know, breaking news, everyone still recognizes I have to be on Twitter for breaking news, but how do I, you know, how do I then figure out one, what is real, but then two, what is worth engaging in. And I think one of the challenges for journalists, and this is a little bit of what I saw in, in Fraud's article, was like, hey, it's just, again, just like a company, like, am I getting on and engaging as a human and part of the you know, community or part of the, uh, the group, or am I getting on as a journalist? And I think one of the things that is hard, if, you know, if, if you're a professional, whether, you know, professional marketer, professional journalist is, you kind of, you're used to having street cred by just saying, hey, I have a platform and I can speak. And now everybody's equal. Everybody has the same playing field. And, and Chris, that, I can tell you, I spent a lot. Yep, go ahead. Chris, th this gets to a point I think that Farhad was making in his column. He argued that Twitter itself is not engineered for nuance, for um, kind of an authoritative perspective. The way it's engineered is based on retweets and likes a certain gauge of popularity that doesn't necessarily uh, help the user to see what's credible versus what's popular. Do you think that's right. fair? Uh, well, look, I think, you know, there's obviously been a lot of work on the algorithms around the timeline, and it seems increasingly like what people really want is the reverse chronological time and just show me who I'm following and, you know, and let me decide from there. And I, I mean, I personally, I don't work for Twitter anymore. I personally think that's the way it's going to go back is we're going to move away from the algorithmic mm. timeline and go back to a place where it's, hey, show me stuff in, in time order. I want to see the most recent stuff first. And I want to see, you know, the people that I follow. And Jeff's totally right. Like everybody I know that really uh, embraces Twitter as a platform spends a huge amount of time constantly curating uh, their feed to make sure that they're getting what they want. And there's a bunch of stuff that I cared about six months ago that I was following that I don't care about anymore. And so unfollow. I, I don't think it's a, I don't personally think it's a Twitter curation 
problem. Huh. I do think it's a, a, oh, I think it's a user commitment. <laughs> Just real quick, once again, I, mean, this I, is I think it's totally We're talking a- about social, whether it's time to pull back some of the issues connected to that. Farhad, jump in here. Let me know if I mischaracterized your argument around the way Twitter is structured. Yeah, no, I, I think you got it right. I think it's totally a, um, a Twitter uh, Twitter user interface design algorithm problem. I think, you know, they've been saying for a while they're working on some way to create healthier conversations. One of the things they did that was really good, I think, was increase the, um, the tweet length. I think that is made for some better, more nuanced conversations. But the other thing they did is they made it much more algorithmic, which means, like, the hotter, more viral takes um, become more viral. And so you see sort of faster viral movement. One of the reasons I think, you know, the Covington story spread so fast in the early days is because there were some people's tweets that just went like wildfire. I don't know that w- if that would have happened in the old reverse cron days, but the, um, the algorithm has been good for them. It's been good for, you know, engagement, and I, I don't see any sign that they're changing it. Um, they're going to go back, huh. like they're going to offer some, they may offer some uh, options, but, you know, the algorithm, mm-hmm. it seems like it's been good for them. Jeff, they're gonna what, stick what about with it. that, though? What, what, what about the argument that that front pages back in the old days when we had newspapers that came out once or twice a day, they were organized in terms of what was important. And there were editors who vetted things. It was based on this idea of credibility. On Twitter, on Facebook, other social media platforms, it's more based on who's popular and who retweets or likes what they had to say. Sometimes that's going to be false or it's going to be incendiary or it's going to promote information. That's not the full story. Well, first to Farhad's point, on my lovely Android phone right now, I can switch back and forth between the chronological and the algorithmic, and I go back and forth all the time, and you know what, when I stay with the chronological, I kind of miss the algorithmic discovering things that I wouldn't have seen from 10 hours ago. So I find it very, very useful. Uh, on your point, I don't think it's so much, it depends on who you follow. And if you, if you find you're reading jerks, you have bad friends. Find new friends. Figure it out. Curate, as, as Chris says. But uh, even algorithmically, sometimes yeah, Twitter I think gives actually... me people who I don't follow. They'll give me popular sure. people that somebody who I follow follows and some tweet that they've put out. And, I mean, that, that's interesting, but it's not necessarily credible. But so let, let's talk for a moment. I, I read two studies this morning. Uh, uh, academic studies with real footnotes and things that I'm not used to doing, um, that talked about the level of fake news, so-called, that got out to people. And in studies of both Facebook and Twitter, it's tiny. I think we have this moral panic going on. Number one, that, oh my God, Twitter and the world are overrun with this propaganda and junk. And number two, that people are such sheeple and so stupid that seeing one meme is gonna change them from a civilized person into a lout. We've got to calm down, number one, and we've got to give people out there some credit. I think part of the problem right now with all this coverage is, based on who the country elected as president, uh, we're kind of presuming the idiocy of the people, and that's not going to get us very far. Well, haven't we always done that, depending on uh, whether the person who you voted for won or not? (laughs) I might argue you presume that whoever elected that person uh, is an idiot and the country is going uh, to hell in a handbasket. Was that Chris that I heard uh, jumping in there or Farhad? Yeah, no, I, I was pointing out that, you know, yes, in the old days, it's like, hey, look, there's there's two cycles a day and there's somebody deciding what's most important that's going first. I still think, al- algorithmic timeline aside, I still think the vast majority of what I see in my Twitter feed, I would say is what I decided I want to see. I think it's user, the user decides what they think is important, mostly by deciding who they want to follow. Yes, occasionally stuff that I don't follow shows up in my timeline, usually because somebody else that I care about is retweeting it. But I still think the user dominates. I think the great thing about Twitter 
as a platform is it, you know, this notion of every, okay, everybody has a voice, but it really amplifies a voice that, you know, we don't sometimes understand exists. I mean, I think, yes. you know, I, I don't think probably anyone involved in this conversation thinks that Donald Trump is creating more racist, but we could, but I think one thing is um, clear is that I'm sure some people he has given that, people a platform. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. I think, you He's know, I think. Permission. The camp I fall in is that there were a lot of racists already, and he gave them permission to to speak up. Um, so he didn't create racists; he just gave them a platform to be, you know, to be vocal. And I think it raised awareness across this country about, you know, racism being a much bigger issue than people realize. That's happening on Twitter every day. Is that mm. yes, there's a lot of people saying a lot of really terrible things out there, but it's important to know that those people exist and they have those thoughts. I mean, more information is better. If I think back to my you know, to my Twitter data days, a lot of what we were doing was providing information to, you know, help improve the flow of information. So, uh, hey, let's understand where people are talking about the dangers of vaccines so we can go in um, and actually, you know, whether through public health initiatives, uh, et cetera, go in and actually educate communities on what's yeah. going on with vaccines. So raise, like, uh, yeah. understanding those conversations are happening and misinformation's happening out there, it gives us an opportunity to address it. It's not easy, but it at least gives us a platform to start to address misinformation. And you raise an interesting philosophical question. Is racism like matter? Can it, can it be created? Can it be destroyed? Uh, I want to pull in Jaron Lanier, uh, researcher at Microsoft, computer scientist, big thinker about VR, AR, uh, society, social media. Uh, you gave a TED Talk specifically about social, uh, and you wrote the book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Pretty clear which side of this line you might come down on, Jaren. Good to see you again. Yeah, hey. <laughs> Good to be on. Thanks for having me. So what about the argument that social gives journalists, and not just journalists, everyone, insight into the experiences of people who they otherwise would not have noticed, and it has value, and therefore people shouldn't abandon social entirely. Well, look, I've never denied the real value that's there. In fact, uh, as I view it, that value is intrinsic to the internet itself, and what happened is the social media companies glommed onto this value that was inherent in the internet, and it added all this other weird stuff with the advertising model where people are being measured and manipulated and spied on all the time. And all that crap doesn't need to be there. We can have the benefits without all this other stuff. Um, hey, can I address what I was just hearing for a sec? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, look. Um, the claim isn't that people are suddenly turned dramatically horrible or into racist. The claim is that they're changed just a little bit at a time, a little by little. Um, so, for instance, Facebook's own researchers have published peer-reviewed research proving they can make people sad, they can affect voting behavior, and the people involved don't know it's happening. And it's slight. You know, the thing is, though, it's like compound interest. A little bit <laughs> applied consistently actually can shift a society, and that's, that's the problem we've had here. We have um, a subtle difference. We don't have uh, the sudden pounding of horrible memes that hypnotizes people. We have crowds of fake people exerting a slight influence on what stories get more play, on which weird paranoid things find their audience. And then over time, this does have a coloring effect. 
Uh, and it's unfortunate, it's horrible. I don't doubt the sincerity of folks at Twitter. In fact, I know many of them, and I feel that this was a mistake, not a matter of ill intent, but it's a real mistake. It's one we have to correct. And for now, yes, quit the damn accounts. Like, that's the right <laughs> thing to do until the companies fix it. Jeff, there, there seems yeah, to be you know, this dichotomy. Say... There seems to be this dichotomy in social media between the potential of it to open people up to perspectives and ideas and video that they'd never seen before. And then the other side is recirculated air. We found that so very often people are just connected to people who agree with them. They're recirculating the same memes and ideas, and in some cases, falsehoods, and they're not as open to perspectives that they would have gotten. You see, that's the presumption, but research shows the filter bubbles don't really exist, and people online are exposed to more arguments than they otherwise would have had. There's a wonderful book out by Yochai Benkler at uh, Harvard uh, who studied this, and if you want to take something off and you want to kill something that's having an effect on the country, I'll say it bluntly, turn off Fox News. Turn off talk radio. <laughs> turn off the things that have had an impact on people in my family and that have had an impact on, on this country. Uh, so I think we in media have not come anywhere near to admitting our culpability into where we are as a country right now. <laughs> hey. Oh, but I mean, that was my argument. My argument was that one of the things that's happening is that, you know, one of the ways cable news, primetime cable news is is programmed is people see what's popular on, on, on Twitter and then they uh, kind of make their narratives about it. And then that what happens on Twitter is that Twitter's fault or is that, is that TV's world. fault, Farhad? Oh, I mean, I'm t it's it's the journalists who are on Twitter and who work on TV. It's the whole system. But Twitter is a key part in that system. And I think that if we sort of pull back from from the responsible ones among us, pull back from Twitter, we'll sort of fall less into that to that camp. Um, you know, one thing that I, I for me, Twitter hasn't. I don't think that it's a matter of sort of exposing you to new perspectives or changing um, your point of view. As a journalist, what Twitter has really done to me, I think, is like shorten my um, temporal scope. Like I, I used to sort of think about stories as lasting more than an hour or a day. And because of Twitter, one of the kind of problems I fall into all the time is a story is hot and trending right now, and then the next day or two days later, it's forgotten. Um, this and our entire news cycle is just sort of is you know like stuff from a week ago is just down a memory hole. And I think Twitter plays a key part in that because journalists are trained to look at really exactly what's happening right now on Twitter, and sort of anything else um, feels. Out of, out of the moment. Well, as we draw to a close talking about this, I want to get to solutions. And Jaron, I know how much you love talking solutions and not <laughs> just problems. So I want to start with you. Uh, beyond just quitting all your social accounts, we know that's one solution that's possible. If people aren't going to do that and they're going to continue to engage, what's a solution to um, either reacting too quickly or uh, uh, spreading misinformation? Simple steps that people can take. Okay, right now there's a few schools of solutions to make the companies better. One of them is my buddy Tim Wu wants us to apply antitrust and break them up. Another one is European regulators want to enforce strict privacy rules. I personally don't believe either of those are the solution. I personally believe we have to change the business model so that there's no longer advertising, period. Uh, if you're going to wow. be social media, you can't also be advertising. It turns into weird mind control because the algorithm 
algorithms and the technology have become too advanced. So there's a really easy solution. You pay for it. People pay their cable bills now. They pay Netflix. Uh, we have this thing called peak TV because people have decided to pay for TV. When people pay for social media, we'll have peak social media and more people will be making money from going right. viral on social media and then we'll have less unemployment as the robots take over. That, so it's a better solution. <laughs> that's one idea. Chris, what's your solution? Yeah, I, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not on board with that. Uh, I'm not getting on that bus. But um, for me, I think it's like every person that's on Twitter has to have a strategy. Journalists have to have a strategy. Companies, individuals, they all have to have a strategy about how much they want to intake versus how much they want to output, and just be thoughtful about it. I mean, I think for me, I, I love Twitter because I do think I get exposed to a lot of different perspectives and a lot of bunch of information I wouldn't get. You know, I engage very thoughtfully. I decide when I'm going to engage on a topic and when I'm not. And I think it's, it's, it's as simple as that. I don't think it's a platform uh, problem. You know, I, I separate Facebook, which I do think has um, stepped over the line significantly on the privacy side from a platform like Twitter, where honestly, the product's just not that sophisticated. Huh. It, it is fundamentally uh, a product that is, is about just getting out as much information, and that's what it's optimized for, is getting out as much information as quickly as possible. Okay. So when I think about Twitter, it's just about having a thoughtful strategy. Farhad, lurking, is that the solution? Uh, I mean, I think never tweet should be an aspiration, but if you can't do that, uh, lurk, just look less. Um, I, I mean, really what for, for me, it's sort of like I think about it as like addiction. Like I was addicted to Twitter, and I think a lot of journalists are, um, and just pulling back has done wonders for me. Uh, all right, Professor. Jeff? I want to be beware, be, be, beware of the privilege that we hear in this conversation. Uh, oh, we can ignore some people, or oh, everybody can afford to pay. They can't. And I think that we have a tool that enables people who were never heard before to speak, and it is our obligation to oh, listen to them. Oh, God, I so and object to that point of view. Well, I, I mean, social media has been destroying poor communities. Well, let's let Jeff state it. We're, we're coming to a close. Tell and that to the, the Rohingyas. I mean, you can't. You, this is like destroying the village to save it. The, 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 I, the least affluent people are the ones who are hurt we, the most. It's a completely let, false argument. We've got to let Jeff finish. Just one last thing. The, okay, what we sir. have to do is learn how to use these tools well. Look at a company called Spaceship Media that convenes communities into conversation, communities in conflict, and figures out how to do that well. It is possible. This is early days. It's 1475 in Gutenberg years. We're just learning it. Let's hope we don't have a 30 years war. We'll figure this out because the people out there on Times Square are smart in the end. Huh. All right, that's a lot of faith uh, in the people out in Times Square. I'm going to go out there and see in just a couple of minutes. Don't, don't hug any Elmos while you're out there. <laughs> Jeff, Chris, Jaron, uh, thank you. This has been Fort Knox. Rich ideas, powerful people talking about social media. The pluses, the minuses, the dangers, the advantages. What should you do? Hopefully you got some insight. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox. Rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you 
for lending an ear.